to read through the whole of this chapter. And while we're we're turning it up, can I uh, thank you for your kind words of welcome once again. It's my pleasure to be with you again. And uh, this is the first time I've been here in the front uh, to see your new building. I was here one evening just after you opened up. (coughs) It's a pleasure to be back with you tonight. We trust God will bless us together uh, as we worship him this evening. We're going to read, it's Revelation chapter 4, this is God's word. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders, They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne seven lamps were burning. These are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their beings. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his word. Now we're living in very difficult days and the times they are changing at a very rapid pace. In the political realm we have the prospect of a Trump administration. We have the Russians who are constantly threatening the peace of the world and we have the radical Islamic State which are carrying out their murderous campaigns, especially against the Christians. Near home we have the prospect of Brexit, whatever that will mean for us, with all the unknowns that it will bring. 
And even in, in our province, during the last few weeks, we've had the collapse of the Stormont administration. From a Christian perspective, as we look on the world, we can see that increasingly there is violence against Christians. Different parts of the world, Middle East, Far East, there's been massacres of Christians who have been suffering at the hands of Islamic State. And who knows, in the future, persecution may come to us in days to come. It's increasingly evident that our, our own governments are bringing legislation which will undoubtedly mean that we will no longer enjoy the liberties that once we took for granted. Yes, the days appear to be increasingly evil and threatening. And added to that, the church seems to be on the decline, especially in the West. What's going on? Where is God in the situation? The media, including the newspapers and the TV and the magazines, all are advocating advances of secularism and other isms. And there's even many within the church who fear what the future may hold. What is God doing in our situation? If persecution comes, why doesn't God do something about it? Of course, we need to remember that persecution has always been part and parcel of being a Christian. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32 says, Remember those earlier days after you have received the light, when you stood your ground in the great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. And two chapters later the same writer says, In your struggle you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But it had been known in the past, 15 years before that, before the writer of the Hebrews was writing, the church had gone through a persecution. Jesus himself, did he not warn us that it would be a natural expectation that Christians would suffer? Blessed are you, said Jesus, if you're persecuted. In the world you will have tribulation. And when John was writing this book of Revelation, he was suffering persecution. He had been, he himself had been uh, exiled to an island called Patmos. He was isolated. He was separated from his fellow believers. And he is able to look across the sea to what we would call Turkey, where the seven churches were meeting. And he was isolated, longing to be back in fellowship with his friends, with the saints that he had come to love. And there he was, and he was wondering what was going on. Believers were under severe pressure. Could they keep going? 
keep, they keep keeping going on in the Christian faith or would they be tempted to give up? And it's into that situation that God gives him this vision that we read. The book of Revelation, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a book that essentially tells us that God is in control. He's the one who's on the throne. He's the one who is in control of everything, even allowing trials and tribulations to come to God's people. What I want to propose this evening is to look at chapter 4 with you. And hopefully we will see a God, the God that we worship, is the God who is in control of this universe. Keep your Bibles open, look at verse 2. At once it says, I was in the Spirit. If you go back in chapter 1, verse 10, you will see that previously he had been in the Spirit. He had come back to his normal uh, circumstances. And here again, he's in the Spirit. The Spirit is taking control of him. He's elevated to a higher plane. He's, he's almost... Ordinary circumstances around him have become dim. And he's supremely conscious that the Spirit of God is working. And notice it says he has a vision. Verse 1. There before me was a door standing open in heaven. And he hears the voice that he first heard speaking to him like a trumpet again. Go back to chapter 1 verse 10. And you see, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And we have a description of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was speaking to him then. And now Jesus, the same voice is speaking to him again. As we proceed through this chapter, bear in mind, it's a vision. And we're not to take everything literally. The eyes and the horns and all that. We're not to take them literally. The main point is to show us that the entire universe is governed from the throne in heaven. And that God is working out his purposes as year succeeds to year. One of the old commentators talked about history being his story. Notice in verse 1 it says, Come up here and I will show you what must take place. The divine must, it's God's program. History is his story. What then is the content of this chapter? Well, I have two points. I'm borrowing them from Richard Brooks, who wrote a commentary, I think it was called The Lamb, The Glory of the Lamb, or something like that. And the first heading is the sight that John saw. He first of all sees a throne. Look at verse 2. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now John immediately has a problem. For he has a vision of God on the throne. But how does he describe the indescribable? God is a spirit. So how can he describe the one on the throne? And so he says in verse 3, The one who sat there 
had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and a rainbow resembling an uh, emerald encircled the throne. In order to describe the indescribable, he uses precious stones to describe what he sees. Jasper is the first one. It's a transparent stone, a bit like a diamond, which offers a variety of colours viewed from different angles and lights. And this signifies the infinite perfection of God in all his holiness and all his purity. Carnelian is a blood-red stone. And that speaks of the uncompromising character of God's justice. Of course, the rainbow, we all know what it speaks of. It reminds us of the mercy of God. Points us back to the covenant that God made with Noah, which offered Noah peace and grace and mercy. Here in this vision that John sees, he sees one on the throne. He can't describe this person on the throne. And so he uses these three stones. One speaks of his holiness. One speaks of his justice. One speaks of his mercy. Isn't that the gospel? He sees the God of the gospel. A God who is holy and cannot tolerate sin. A God who is just and must punish sin. And if God is holy and must punish sin, then he will punish every one of us because we are all sinful. But it's only because of the mercy of God in Christ. That any of us can escape that punishment. John is describing for us the God of the gospel. A God who hates sin. A holy God. And yet a God who offers mercy. That's the gospel. So he sees a throne and he sees God sitting on the throne. But then notice secondly he also sees 24 thrones. Surrounding the throne were 24, verse 4, 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Who are they? Well, go on, it says, they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Who are the elders? Can I suggest to the church, the redeemed of the Lord? We get it by simple mouths. In the Old Testament there were 12 tribes. In the New Testament there were 12 apostles. While I'm speaking, if you want to look in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12 to 14, you will see the, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles are grouped together. The 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament represents the people of God in the Old Testament era. The 12 apostles represent all the people of God in the New Testament era. To collectively, together... These 24 elders represent the saints of God throughout the whole of time. 24 elders, notice, they are rendering homage to the God on the throne. And then the third thing he sees in the vision is these four living creatures in the center. Verse 6 
In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. What are these strange creatures? One like a lion, one like an ox, one the face of a man, like the face of a man, the fourth like an eagle flying. What's that all about? If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, and you remember there that Ezekiel had a vision of God, these four uh, creatures appear there as well. And if you go to Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 22, you will find that we're told there that these creatures are the cherubim. They're the highest order of the angels, and they stand around the throne ready to serve the one on the throne. They're close to the throne. William Hendrickson in his commentary says, they are in strength like a lion, an ability to render service like an ox. They have the intelligence of a man and they are swift like an eagle to serve. Cherubim, angels around the throne. What did John see? He saw the throne with God on the throne. He saw the 24 elders, the saints of the ages, around the throne. And he sees these living creatures, the angels. Now you and I would have thought that the order would be God, the angels, and then the church. But it's not. It's God, the church, and then the angels. Why is that? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it is. Let me just check. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, you are, not, you, you are not competent to judge trivial cases. Do you not know that we will judge angels? So even the saints of God are a cut above the angels. And the order is God people of God and the angels. Now, I haven't looked at all the details. There's a whole pile of details there from verse 5 to the first part of verse 6. Maybe this just signifies the majesty and power of God. But don't need to go into all those details. just want you to notice that John sees this, the, 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 God, the God that he worships on the throne. And we'll come back to the application at the end. Second thing then is the song that John heard. From verses 8 to 11, we find that the four creatures, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The triune God is worshipped. In chapter 4, the focus is on God the Father some other time we could look at chapter 5 that focuses on the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. But all in heaven are falling down and worshipping God. What are the themes that excite the living creatures and the church? Why are they constantly, day and night, verse 8, never stop saying or singing, 
the words that are found in verse 8 and the words that are found in verse 11. These are the songs of heaven and the themes that excite the people in heaven should be also the themes that excite us as we sing our praises unto God. What are those themes then? Well, the first is God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy. God is a purer eyes than to be to look on iniquity, says Habakkuk in chapter one and verse thirteen. The seraphim in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah had his vision of God, they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. God is totally different to us. He's separate from sin. He's perfect in all his ways. And God demonstrated that when he sent Jesus to this earth and when Jesus was nailed to a cross. What was happening when Jesus was hanging on the cross? He was taking sin, the sin of his people upon him. And as a result, the holy God couldn't look on his son. And so he turned the lights out. God is holy. We need to remember that. We need to remember that today. We come to worship as God's people. We need to remember it every day. God hates sin. And when we come into his near presence to worship, we should remember that. And when you come to your communion next week, you should remember that God hates all of our sins. God doesn't wink at sin. And we can't play loose with sin either. Peter tells us that we've been called to live a holy life. That's a challenge for all of us. There's a distortion of the gospel which says, Grace of God abounds to sinners. Therefore, if the grace of God abounds to sinners, we might as well sin as much as we want. But Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 6 and he says, How shall we who have died to the rule of sin live any longer therein? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. Definitely not. That's what Paul is saying. The word is a very strong word. By no means. God forbid in the old authorised version. We can't live in sin. And anyone who habitually lives in sin, they need to question their profession of faith. And that's not to say that that we are sinless because none of us are. 1 John tells us that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. 1 John also tells us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But the point that the Bible seems to make is that if we are truly the Lord's people, then we can't easily live with sin. The call of the gospel is a call to holiness. By the grace of God, are you seeking to live a holy life? By the grace of God, are you seeking to turn away from all known sin? The song in heaven was concerned with the holiness of God. Second thing in the song is the omnipotence of God. He's the Lord God Almighty, verse 8. John's writing at a time when the people of God were under threat from the Roman government. 
and a wicked Caesar who had put many of them to death. The Roman government was a powerful government. But in the light of God's almightiness and omnipotence, the power of Rome was limited. And the almighty God was with them. And we too need to remember that in our day. If or when our government makes demands upon us that we cannot fulfill because we're Christians, we need to remember that the power that the government has here is a delegated power. God ordains the powers of the state. God is in control. He will remember his own. Though trials oppress us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. They were singing in heaven about the omnipotence of God. And the third thing is they were singing about his everlastingness, who was and is and is to come. He's from everlasting to everlasting. In contrast to the emperors of this world, God does not come and go. Daniel chapter 2 tells us about the the four kingdoms or the four empires. There was the Babylonian, there was a Persian, there was a Greek and there was the Roman. Each of them came, had their time in power, each of them dwelled. They disappeared. So today, presidents and prime ministers and leaders and rulers will come and they will go. But our God remains on the throne ruling the universe. Look at verse 11, and you see the fourth theme of the song in heaven. He is Lord and God. Now this title, this was the title that the Roman governor Domitian took for himself. And he demanded that everyone would acknowledge him to be such. He wanted them all to say, I am Lord I'm your God. And of course the Christians couldn't say that because Jesus was their Lord and that was the reason why they went through the persecution. Domitian demanded that people throughout his kingdom would acknowledge him as Lord and God. But they refused. And here the psalm in heaven is reminding them that their God is the Lord. And is God. And therefore they were right to stand up against Domitian. Even though it would mean that they would be persecuted. God is Lord. And God. And he alone is to be worshipped. As the Lord. Friends he's Lord. Today. Whether people recognize that or not. He is the Lord. Verse 10, the end of verse 10, it says, they lay their crowns before the throne. What that means really is they bow to him in submission. And that's what we have to do. Bow down to the Lord. When you become a Christian, that's what you do. You acknowledge him as Lord. 
But do people recognize that as we live our Christian lives? When people look at you, do they recognize that you're in submission to a higher authority? Is he, do you demonstrate him to be Lord in your workplace? Has he first place in your home life? In your leisure, do people acknowledge and see that you are in submission to Jesus Christ? Or is it about you? Is it about me? He is Lord. Fifth theme is he's creator. Verse 11 again. You're worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created. Bible from Genesis chapter 1 through to the end declares that God is the creator God. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word created there is a Hebrew word, bara, which speaks of creation out of nothing. There was nothing there. And Psalm 33 that we were singing together, he spoke and the earth came into existence. We believe in a creator God. And that has been the belief of Christians down through the centuries until about 150 years ago or just more when Darwin had his theory of evolution in the species. And since then, that theory has become an accepted fact by the secular media. And if any Christian believes in the, 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 the creation by a sovereign God, then they're considered to be dinosaurs out of touch with reality and against science. And the devil has been so successful here in getting people to think that we have been, that we haven't been created, but we have just come into being by a random selection of cells coming together. So God is no longer the creator in our, in, in the public's mind. And therefore, at the end of life, you don't have to face your creator. If we're just a species or a random selection of species, then, well, if we don't like somebody, we can do away with them. Euthanasia. Abortion. Doesn't really matter. We're just a random selection of atoms or whatever it is. So God has been cut out of society. And we don't, and people no longer need a God. The whole of life has been Affected by this teaching of Darwin. Now there's a number of young people in here tonight and you'll be faced with all kinds of questions about creation. I'm a simple kind of person. The way I look at it is this. I believe that God is the creator. I believe that for a number of reasons. But number one, because the Bible tells me and I have respect. This is God's word. But as well as that, I believe that God is creator because I don't think that I'm just a random selection of cells. And you aren't either. The Bible tells me I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I keep telling my wife that, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Sometimes she accepts it, sometimes she doesn't. <laughs> but you even think of your eyes. Special. Think of your DNA. 
You're not the same as my DNA. Mine's not the same as anybody else's. We are uniquely made by God. And I was reading the other day about snowflakes. And apparently there's a design, a different design for each snowflake. That's not a random selection, is it? This is the touch and the mark of a creator God. And so for those reasons, I believe in a creator God. In schools, they're taught that evolution is a fact. It's not a fact. It's a belief. Science can't prove evolution. Science can't prove creation either. You have to believe one or the other. I believe creation because to me there's less difficulties in believing in a sovereign God who creates individuals than this world came together by a random selection of cells. And so young people, you don't need to be embarrassed by it. You might, you might get called names and all the rest of it. But to hold on to create God as a creator is all right. The Bible teaches it. And there's evidence out there to suggest there was a God who created us different and wonderful. Psalm in heaven was that God is creator. Finally, overall, the song tells us that God is sovereign. He rules the world. Yes, even in the midst of the uncertainties around the world leaders at present, it is good to be reminded that God rules from heaven. I started the service this evening by reading from Isaiah 40, one of the most wonderful chapters in the Old Testament. It tells of a God who looks down on the world and he sees the nations and they're just like a drop in the bucket. Now, when you go home the night, put one drop into a glass or into a bucket or whatever. It'll disintegrate. You'll not see it again. And that's how God sees the nations. They're insignificant. It says he sits <coughs> above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers, insignificant. He brings princes, directly reading from Isaiah 40, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he merely blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Our God's in control. Even the trials that you face, that I face, they've been allowed to come to us for our good and for his glory. And remember, when John was writing this, he was himself being persecuted. And he was being reminded that even that persecution was part of the sovereignty of God and the sovereign purposes. God knows everything about you and me. No, detail, no details surprise him. Why were you born in Northern Ireland or England or I think that's everybody here. Why were we born in this part of the world I'm not born in Cambodia or Russia or China. Why had we the privilege of hearing the gospel from our parents or from our friends 
brought up in, in a Christian environment and not in a communist world. It is because God, before you were born, had plans and purposes for you. Your parents, your circumstances were all ordained and organized and orchestrated by God so that you are the person you are the day because God had planned it. He's a sovereign God. Sometimes we we look at tapestry and we see all the, the different threads of a tapestry, different colors and making a perfect picture. Lovely to look at. But if you look underneath, what do you see? Loose threads and nuts and kind of a mess, isn't it? And sometimes when we look at life, it's a wee bit like looking at the tapestry from underneath. There's loose threads and there's it's a bit of a mess. We don't know what's going on. But God is allowing things to happen to you. Maybe to chip away some of the rough edges to make you more like Christ. And ultimately we're going to be with the church in heaven, the bride of Christ, remade into the image of Christ. Friends, tonight we have a sovereign God who's working out his purposes in your life and mine. Those difficulties you'll face tomorrow, God's allowing them for a purpose. The problems you had last week, they were there for a purpose. And ultimately for our good. Friends, we worship a sovereign God. Somebody who's in control, who's ruling from heaven. Working out his purposes. Therefore, trust him. This was a message of encouragement to the the, the church in the first century. It's a message of encouragement to us in the 21st century. God is working out his purposes for you, for your good, and for his glory. Just one final word. If you're not a believer this evening, then... There's no encouragement here really for you because you will one day have to stand before this sovereign God. The world might say, no, there's no such person and you don't have to give an account. But yes, the Bible teaches us that we will stand before the Lord, a God who hates sin. And if you reject Jesus Christ, then this sovereign God will punish you for ever and ever. But today you've got a chance, another opportunity to escape that punishment because this sovereign God sent Jesus to die on the cross to save sinners. Jesus paid the price. He took the punishment on himself in order that sinners like us could be forgiven so that we would know eternal life and we would one day be with him on the throne, around the throne. Tonight, if you don't know him, seek him and trust him and find him to be your saviour. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter 
that gives us great encouragement to believe in a God who is in control of everything. We recognise that around us things change, governments change, everything changes, we change. But you're the God who does not change. And you're the God who rules. Lord, give us confidence to, to face tomorrow knowing that you are going before us and you're working in us and through us and you're working to remake us into Christ's image. Lord, write your word on our hearts. Give us confidence in you. Give us confidence in a God who's in control. Give us confidence to trust this God in all of life. Lord, you know circumstances that are not nice in our lives. You know the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations that some of us have to face. Lord, we pray for grace and we pray that you would enable us to, to look to you and to, to, to trust you to take us through those situations. Some are going through very dark and troublesome times. May they be able to lift their eyes and see a God who's on, in control on the throne. And working for your good, for our good, and for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.